Friends, do you have a Christian obligation to treat and care for immigrants beyond just getting them into the country? Our guest today says that yes, we do, and she challenges us to think about it. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 310, Karen Gonzalez, and Beyond Welcome. Halfway there. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. What's it like being a follower of Jesus in the 21st century? And today's conversation, I know, is going to add a lot to that picture. Can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, by the way, if you're listening to this and you have an opportunity, you can always find show notes and everything at halfwaytherepodcast.com. Tell a friend, tell somebody about uh, what you heard on Halfway There. And if you can, you're able to hit that Patreon button and support the show. That helps so much. Thank you to those of you who are already helping us keep running. It definitely keeps us going, so I appreciate it. Okay, let's dive into our conversation. I mentioned a few episodes ago that we were going to have a few return guests. That's because they're having they're creating conversations that I think you're having about your uh, walk and what's going on out there and uh, in the kind of the culture, the zeitgeist, if we want to be pull out the fancy German words. Um, and so I wanted to have this conversation. I'm excited to welcome back our guest. She's a speaker, a writer, a storyteller, and an immigrant advocate um, who herself came from Guatemala as a child. If you want to hear that story, you can go back to episode number 166. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit. Our guest is Karen Gonzalez. Karen, welcome back to Halfway There. Thank you. And thanks for having me on again. Yeah. I told you before, and it's special. We don't do this all the time and it's got to be a conversation that I'm interested in having. Uh, and it is because you have a new book. Is it out or is it coming out? Well, Beyond Welcome, Centering Immigrants in Our Christian Response to Immigration. It's coming out October 18th. Great. So maybe by the time you're hearing this, it'll be out or maybe this will be out right, right around that time. Um, but I've got the very cool advanced copy, which I always appreciate uh, getting. But yes, so interesting conversation that you're starting here. It's been a couple of years, uh, as, as we said, that since we talked, what have you been up to? And kind of besides writing, obviously, what, what have you been doing and kind of where where are you at? Yeah, so after I published my first book, which was called The God Who Sees, it was received really well. And I ended up doing a lot of speaking about, not about it directly, um, but being invited to speak as a result of people who read that book at churches, at colleges, uh, universities, and at conferences. And what I wanted to do was really have a conversation um, about immigrants as image bearers of God, as our neighbors, um, and really seek to elevate the discourse in the church because so much of it, it's like if you, you know, drank milk your whole life and never really tried anything else in right. the church, everything seems to be about welcome for people who are, you know, pro immigration and, so, and that's where it stops. It's like people's discipleship or, you know, development um, gets stunted right there and doesn't really grow beyond that into, well, what does it look like once people are here and people have been welcomed through policies and with people, well, what does it look like to be a neighbor then to immigrants? 
Yeah. And you have a responsibility to do that, which mm-hmm. I think is even, even a, it's a more basic conversation, but it's also the start, right? We have to have that conversation to, to get into what we actually should be doing. Um, I love that. So absolutely very fascinating. Glad you got out there and were able to do a lot of speaking. Uh, I, I mentioned that I see you personally that I quoted you because the episode really did change some of my thinking as well. That conversation that we had, did you, um, did, when did you publish that? When, when did that come out? 2019. 2019. Okay. So that was kind of an interesting time, right? Obviously we were already kind of in this national conversation about what does it mean? There was a lot of talk about building a big wall and all these kinds of things that, that were kind of making it very toxic. Even we could say is a word we'd use now that we maybe wouldn't have used then. Um, but so that's, that's fantastic. I love that you're contributing that conversation. I want to dive into the more of the spiritual formation of it. So mm-hmm. I have a few questions. We'll dig into it. And um, I kind of have some of them come from the book and uh, we'll follow curiosity as we go. One one thing I was really curious about, because you make a point in the, in the book, that movement is kind of normal mm-hmm. for people, right? Which I think is a good place to start. Uh, can you just talk to us a little bit about that, how movement of people in between countries and between places is actually not unusual and not a bad thing. Yeah. So that was really kind of a revelation to me as well, to be honest. Um, I was in Dublin for one day. It was just a layover, but it was so long that we decided to kind of venture into the city and we ended up at this Irish Emigration Museum. So not immigration, (laughs) emigration, because so many people have left Ireland, even five years ago, something like 30,000 people left. Mm. So they've had a lot of movement out of their country. And so they had this museum that was devoted to all of the contributions that Irish um, immigrants have made to the countries that have received them. And it was the U.S. and Canada and Australia and New Zealand, all these different places. And it was really interesting to me because the first room of this museum, and by the way, I highly recommend this museum. It was just a really interesting experience. The first room had all these routes, you know, in and out of Ireland and all the different groups that have, you know, come in there and left there and they seem to see this as a very normal thing and not unusual. And this got me thinking a lot about that. And so I started reading more about this. And in fact, if you gathered all of the people on the move in the world today in one place, they would make the fifth most populous country in the world. Wow. So it's a lot of people that are moving. And if you think about it, even within our U.S. borders, I think about like Hurricane Katrina back in 2000, Mm -hmm. what was it, seven, uh, when Hurricane Katrina hit or six. But what happened was we had a, a massive move of people out of New Orleans and they went to places like Houston. Some some came back. A lot of people just moved We've had people move because of the fires on the West Coast and they've yep. entire towns are ghost towns. 
now because of the movement of people out. And so, and people have always moved for the reasons that people move today. People move for jobs. People move for family, right? I live near DC. So many people live there until they have kids and then they move back home wherever they came from to your, you know, mom and dad and more support. You know what? Literally this year, my wife and I gave very serious consideration to doing that. We both grew up in Iowa. Mm-hmm. We live in Colorado now, which let's be honest, it's way cooler in Colorado. <laughs> but nice. we considered it, right? We were, yeah. we were like, oh, maybe maybe what we should do is move back to family. So I relate to that a lot because mm-hmm. that's a conversation we've been having. It's not, yeah. we're looking, even opportunity. So people move for opportunities. They move for natural disaster. They move right for all kinds of reasons. Exactly. All kinds of reasons. Yeah. And even my family, we, we originally lived in California, but as you know, real estate in California is outrageously expensive, which is why they're moving to Colorado and Texas and driving up the prices there. That's right. So we moved to Florida because it was more affordable for my parents to be able to buy a home. And so movement is very normal and we need to normalize it. We need to talk about it. Like it's a normal thing because it's normal. We just happen to live in a very large country where if you move from one coast right. to the other, you find a completely different landscape. Right. Yeah. You know, you know where I notice how weird that is, is mm-hmm. TikTok. So there's, if you, one of the sides of TikTok I've landed on is there's all these British people who uh, are kind of awed about things in the, in the United States. Right. And they're like, you do what, you know, all these things. Mm-hmm. And then they figure out that like Texas is bigger than the whole UK or something. Right. And they're like, Whoa, it takes how many hours to drive clear across it in eight hours. I could be in the whole other end of our country. So we don't realize that we don't have that perspective because it's normal for us like to go to different States and have that be three, four, five, ten hours, whatever. But that is a perspective that we need to keep in mind. Yeah, most definitely. And not only that, but if you read the scriptures, you will see that if you really have an eye to see that and to notice all the times that someone left one land and went to another, it's for the same reasons people are still moving today, driven out by famine a lot. And the preferred destination for those fleeing famine, Egypt, because of the Nile River, right? And the fertile land um, in Egypt. And so... People in the scriptures move for the same reasons that people move today, with the exception of maybe Abraham, who was told by God (laughs) to move to a specific place. But But, yeah, people... But even that, sometimes some people today move because they feel called to, and they feel like that's that's Mm -hmm. the thing we need to do. Okay, so I wanted to just establish that up front, that moving is a human thing. It's not a thing of just people who are wanting to take advantage of others or for, or whatever, which I think is sometimes part of the negative perception that we get in our American political debate about immigration. Um, so that's, that's really good. Uh, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting that I wanted to ask you, because I know you have experience with this. If people want to hear the whole story, they can go back and listen to episode 166 and they can hear your story. We went through it in, I think, pretty good depth, but what does it mean to be a stranger in a strange land, right? Mm-hmm. Cause that, so people do move, then they have this experience that can be a little bit intimidating. And I know you had that as a, as a child. Yeah. 
And, you know, I've had that even within the U.S. When I went to Fuller Seminary, which is out in California, I moved from Florida to California, where I had not lived since I was a very little girl. And it was quite a culture shock for me, even to make that move, because suddenly I'd been in a place where Cuban Americans were the majority and Puerto Ricans. And now I was in a place where it was majority Central Americans and Mexicans. Oh, yeah. Totally different uh, culture, language, totally different history. And so it happens even like within the U.S. that you can experience that kind of um, culture shock uh, within your own country. I was just in Texas last week. Let me tell you, it's very different from Colorado. It's a different world, right? Everything is bigger. They had a big eyeball in a park. I don't know why, but that's Texas, right? That's, that's the thing. But yeah, there, there are these different kind of cultures. Um, yeah. And we kind of, we kind of get that. I, as I was reading, I had this thought that actually being a stranger is kind of a, should be a con, a common feeling or a normal feeling for a follower of Jesus mm-hmm. in, in the world, right? Like that's a, if we are part of the kingdom of God, being feeling like a stranger in the world we're in is kind of normal, right? Right. It's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, We're supposed to be sort of passing through here, right? And this is not our home. And Paul really um, expands on that idea when he talks about the idea of citizenship. And he was a Roman citizen, but he didn't value that citizenship as much as he Mm. valued being a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so, yes, there is this idea of there is an an immigrant person who can be, feel like a stranger in a strange land. And then there is also the idea that as Christians, this isn't supposed to be our world in the sense of, oh, we're, we're not supposed to be working, you know, for Caesar or for the empire, right? Our kingdom is another. And so that's the kingdom we're supposed to be, to have our first loyalty to. And of course, Paul lived his life by that principle. And in the end, it cost him his life, right? He was executed by the empire. So yeah, yeah there is um, sort of, it's kind of like those Russian nesting dolls, right? You have a doll and then inside is another doll. And that's kind of how it feels, this idea of, of citizenship. And I think the first experience I had was when I lived in the former Soviet Union. I lived in Russia and Kazakhstan. And it was as an adult, I was, you know, 30 when I went to do that. And it was the first time that I'd had that experience of being a stranger in a strange land where everything was done differently. You feel like you step back in time, you know, it was just a very jarring experience, but it also connected me to that idea. Right. Mm. I mean, Jesus, we could say was a celestial immigrant, right. Came from another place, (laughs) but that's one way to look at it. Yeah. But it kind of connected me to that idea of being in a place, um, passing through, not belonging to it, but being there. Right. Yeah. That's really interesting. There's another idea about Jesus where 
you know, he came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. Right. So he, he also can identify that in the little, in, in ways of, you know, he's not, not being accepted. Um, that's kind of interesting. Okay. So I want to, I want to ask this question, uh, cause the subtitle of the book is books beyond welcome centering immigrants in our Christian response to immigration. So I know that for some of my conservative friends, and I'll, I'll tell you, I generally grew up conservative. I'm generally pretty conservative. And yet over the last five or six years, right. Things have happened where, where mm-hmm. it's like, I, I, I can't go that far to the right. Uh, there are some things on the other direction that I'm not always comfortable with, but I also feel like we've got to, we've, there's, there's some really good in the, in the middle that we need to to look at. And so I'm trying to listen to both sides. Okay. So you use that word centering, which I often hear, I don't hear that from my right leaning friends. I hear that from my left leaning friends. Right. So what does that word mean for those of us who don't um, use that, that word as a, as a, in everyday language, what does that look like? And then what is that? How, how can we has applied to this conversation? Sure. So in the way that I'm using this word centering, it means that often the people who are at the center of the conversation. So the most important people are at the right. center, right? The way the sun is at the center of the universe of our universe. Right. But often when we talk about immigration, we don't put immigrants and their well-being and their dignity mm-hmm. at the center. Instead, we put host countries or the, or their citizens at the center of the conversation. So what is good for them? What makes them comfortable? What is it that they want or need in the conversation? And so I really believe that Jesus would not have us put the people with the most power or wealth at the center of the conversation, but rather the people who are the least of these, the people who are on the margins of society, because that's what he did in his life on earth is he went to the places where other people wouldn't go. uh, And he went to people that others didn't care to put at the center in any way. Right. He talked to widows, he talked to women He talked to tax collectors, all of these people that nobody wanted to talk to, or people who were disabled and were seen as cursed um, by the culture. And so that's what I was seeking to do in the book is how do Mm -hmm. we, how do we do that with immigrants so that they're at the center and we're thinking about their well-being. And so, yeah, that, that's where I was going. Yeah. So I really like that. So what I'm hearing you say is let's move the conversation away from those who have the power to influence it uh, to those who actually need the attention. Yeah. And so if you think about something as small as, you know, I went to some of the protests when families were being separated in the borderlands Mm -hmm. and I saw signs that said, you know, we welcome refugees, which is a really positive sign, but still the people being centered there, the we, the subject of that sentence Mm -hmm. are the host citizens. Um, And then the object of that sign are the immigrants, right? So the focus is still on us and our posture rather than 
people who are vulnerable. So. Right. Okay. So that takes some humility though, Karen, how are we going to do that? Like that takes a lot of pushing ourselves, ourselves aside rather than immigrants. That's, yeah. So this is where we get into the sort of, it's almost a spiritual discipline. It is. And it really requires us to think about our, our placement in the world. So, I mean, just to give you an example, right. I live near DC. DC's having a housing crisis, like many places around mm. the country. And what's happened is a neighborhood that was historically black and brown. So lots of immigrants, uh, lots of uh, poor, you know, working class um, black people are being displaced from the neighborhood um, by gentrification, right? So yeah, which, which can you just define that for people sure. who maybe don't hear that already? Sure. Gentrification is just um, sort of young professional people, typically young, are moving into cities and wanting to live in the cities. So neighborhoods are being revitalized, which is a very good thing. But unfortunately, that revitalization comes with displacement. And so now a landlord sees, oh, this young professional wants to live here. I could kick out this immigrant family and I could, you know, rent this for twice as much now. And so that's what's happening in DC. And it's interesting because I was there recently and saw that there was a church that is quite a large church in the city doing this sort of welcoming event for people in the community. And mind you, the church arrived in this neighborhood late, like within the last 10 years, but they were having this huge, you know, welcoming event Mm -hmm. to their neighbors. And I really stopped and paused to really observe this whole situation because literally the church members were displacing people who lived in that neighborhood And the church is saying, we welcome you when it wasn't even their neighborhood to start with. So who gets to welcome here when the neighborhood was not historically theirs? You know what I mean? And so now they've taken on the neighborhood belongs to us and we welcome you. And that is to me, a real lack of humility and a real lack of paying attention and really noticing what's happening and what their position is in this community. So. Yes, that was very well said. Yeah. I think that's part of the, part of the issue, right? So making themselves sort of the center and uh, were they welcoming people to their church? I don't know what is that whole thing, but you're not the most important thing happening in this neighborhood, right? Like that's kind of, kind of what I'm, I'm hearing you say. And we have, we have to just be, it's great to be there. It's great to serve people. Mm -hmm but not make it about, make it about them, not about you. And this is something I think us Christians deal with a lot. A lot of American evangelical, probably white churches in the suburbs struggle with this when when we're like, Hey, we want to do something. We see these problems. We want to do something. They make it about themselves instead of about the people who they're, who the least of these, as you said. Right. So, okay. Well, thank you for addressing that too, because I think it's, it's, we get caught up in language sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know? And so, uh, I wanted I wanted to be able to talk about that in a way that some of my friends in different parts of the political spectrum could hear it. You had this you had this really great line. You were talking about assimilation. You said this: Jesus does not ask me or anyone to assimilate, but to become fully ourselves. Mm-hmm. So this is again in that spiritual formation vein, because I think becoming who you are 
is actually a godly thing. It's a process that we go through. There are people who argue with me about that, but they're wrong. It's okay. And, uh, and I, so when uh, that stood out to me as a piece of this, so what do we lose if we do not embrace becoming fully ourselves in Christ? And if we don't take that view of those who are, who are immigrants and, and refugees? I think that if we do not take on that view that Jesus is asking us to be more fully ourselves, who, who God created us to be, then what we ask people to do is to conform to our image, mm. not God's. Wow. And you see that um, over and over again with the pressure that immigrants have to assimilate. You see that with people being suspicious, you know, of differences instead of allowing people to eat the food they want and speak the language they want. Um, I saw that, I think I used as an example in the book when I was a teacher and you know, I worked in this school when there were so many professing Christians, literally people would sit in, you know, the detention room and the supervisor would be reading the Jesus I never knew, you know, which was a popular yeah. book at the time, but would treat like the kids who were Mexican and Mexican American with such disdain because he didn't like that. They didn't speak English well enough for him. He didn't like that. They weren't wearing the kind of clothes that he thought they should be wearing, you know? So what he was really asking them to do was conform to the image of his idea of what an American should be of mm. what a person who is good should be not at all into conforming to be more like Christ or to be themselves in any way. And so I think that is something that you see with, mm. you know, people think assimilation is the key, right? That is, that is what immigrants should do. And that's why people are concerned. People are so concerned about Muslim immigrants. They feel that Muslim immigrants are not going to assimilate. They're going to wear a hijab. They're going to, you know, speak a different language and eat different kinds of food. Um, and this is a threat somehow. If they're not like me or you, then this is a threat now to our way of life. And I think that fear of that threat, it's really rooted in, in white supremacy, in nationalism. It's not rooted at all in the teachings of Jesus in any way, because that is not something that Jesus would ask. In fact, Right. We see that, right, when Jesus encounters people uh, in the Gospels. And so, yeah, so that was really what I was getting at with that. And I knew that, you know, I really debated whether I should use the words white supremacy, but it's the right word for what's happening, for the, that threat that people feel. It's like a threat to my way of life. It's not a threat at all to my faith. It's only a threat to what I believe is the right way to live. Yeah. Okay. So you talk a little bit about the melting pot idea, right? Mm -hmm. About of America. And I grew up being taught that, right? Maybe mm -hmm. you did too. That did was, too. that was the thing. So that's what America was about. You mentioned the Irish immigrants, you know, that all those people came over in the 19th century 
the Irish were treated terribly, you know, mm-hmm. different anyway, the whole there's a whole thing. Um but that but that's was sort of the idea. And I don't know that it is a melting pot that we all become one. It's more like a stew. And maybe you said that in the, your first book. I don't know. But uh, it's more like that, right? Where you get a carrot and you get a pea and you get a little bit of meat and you get a little bit of potato, whatever. And But we're all in the same kind of mix. But all of them together make this really beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's really sort of the newer model is to think about integration. So people yeah. can integrate. You can speak Spanish with your Spanish speaking relatives, speak English when you go to the 7-Eleven or the Target or wherever you go. And you sort of learn to exist with two different cultures rather than sacrificing one. And I don't think people realize when you ask people, like I remember my parents being pressured not to teach us Spanish and not to speak to us in Spanish when we were kids. But if you think about it, let's say my parents yeah. had obeyed that, how would they have communicated with us? How <laughs> right. would we have been able to maintain a relationship because language and culture are so closely tied? How would that have happened for my parents? It was they. It, there were enough losses for them in having us be raised here in the U.S., without also losing the ability completely to communicate with us, and that's really when a teacher pressures a parent to do that, which still happens today, especially in certain states, that's what you're asking the parents to give up. And some parents think, well, you know, all parents love their children and want them to be well. And so some parents give into that pressure because, well, the teacher says this is the right thing. But what we want to do was, is to be able to let people maintain their cultural or ethnic identity their language, and then also integrate into the U.S. And that's really what was happening. So I remember I used to work as a teacher and I had a colleague who was German. His parents were German and he was born here in the U.S. So he said when he was little, they spoke to him in German. But then what happened was World War II and then Uh, all of the, everything changed, right? the attitude toward Germans and Germany and speaking German. And then his parents stopped speaking to him in German, but he says it was really hard because he would hear his parents communicate with his grandparents and he had no idea completely lost um, that culture and was not able to pass on any of that to his own because his parents were so fearful of the pressure that was being put on them externally, not to speak their language. And so It's a tremendous loss to families when we do that. We really do hurt families. And so really what the important thing to do is to let people be and not be threatened by these things because they're not threatening. And that was really my point. And that's why I pulled out the Joseph story about the date of assimilation. Right. You asked that question uh, because I think you make the point that Joseph goes to Egypt and he spends like his whole life in Egypt. Yeah. Right. And so you ask like, okay, he's Hebrew, but is he really? Because he also is, he's really Egyptian because he's, he's integrated into Egyptian culture to the point that he's, you know, yeah, he recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him. No. And he gets a new name. He gets an Egyptian wife and he doesn't, even when he's free, you know, he, he gets liberated from prison he makes no attempt to go 
back to the place right. he came from. You know, he stays. And so, yeah, it's really telling how much. And then he not only assimilates into Egypt, he assimilates into Egyptian systems of oppression. <laughs> right. I mean, he ends right. up being the one who is responsible for the enslavement of not only the Egyptians, but eventually his own descendants. They become, yeah. because of this monopoly of food that he creates. So yeah, it's a very interesting story. And you know, when I thought about it, because these were ideas I read in Walter Brueggemann's book, Journey to the Common Good, that's where I first encountered that idea. And then I compared him to Moses, you know, a few, few generations later, we don't know how many, you have Moses, who doesn't do that, does not assimilate, even though he hmm. grows up in full privilege, you know, in Egypt, he does not assimilate into and he recognizes the harm being done to the Hebrew people. So, so it's possible, even, you know, if you think about the fact that some people say, well, it's not fair to judge Joseph by 21st century standards. Okay. But then we have Moses who does choose differently <laughs> just, a just a little bit later. Yeah. Boy, that's interesting. Okay. I need to read more Brueggemann probably. I, uh, every, every time I hear him brought up, I'm like, yes, that's really good. Going back to the the whole melting pot idea. I don't think the American culture though is English, right? Or is, I mean, we, we speak English, but maybe that's our, the common way that we relate, but it's not, that's not what it is. It's an, it's an ethos and some values about what we can say, what the government can do, what, you know, what we can, we can debate some of those maybe, but it's not that. And so why are we fighting so hard for things like English or like, you know, I don't know. There's a lot, there's a host of other things. Do you, I, I don't yeah. know how you see that. I'd be curious about your thoughts on it. Yeah, there is no official American language right. in the United States. And so really you can speak whatever you want. In fact, in the continent of, you know, North America, South America, the most widely spoken language is Spanish. Totally. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. So yeah, it's um so that's really interesting to me that it's not really even yeah, and there's no one culture. We we even talked about the fact that regionally it's very different depending on if right. you're in the Pacific totally. Northwest or the Southwest or wherever you happen uh, to live in within the country. So that's what I mean. Like this whole idea of assimilating is really, it's really not realistic because assimilating to which, you know, U.S. culture. And if you think about, you know, are your ancestors Irish or English or do you know? Uh, Irish, German, English. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I was reading about these groups when they arrived in the U.S. And uh, Benjamin Franklin was really, really worried about Germans coming to the United States because he just thought that they were not going to assimilate. They were going to turn they, the country German. <laughs> they, they helped us out in the war, by the way. Yeah. So I don't know why he was afraid of them, but okay. Yes, he was very concerned about them coming here. But it's interesting. They all came here. And if, you know, I live in, in Baltimore, there's a little Italy in Baltimore. Because when the Italians came, they all lived in that neighborhood and they spoke Italian and they opened Italian restaurants and shops because what they were trying to do was to replicate the best of their old country 
in a, in a different place, in a place that had more favorable circumstances for them, a place with a better economy perhaps. And so that's what they did. And that's what the Irish did too. They created their little Irish neighborhoods here in Baltimore. There were also a lot of German neighborhoods. And in fact, there's a town called Lutherville that was a German town uh, just outside of Baltimore. (laughs) So I grew up in Iowa and Iowa, lots of German influence, right? So you would definitely, you get a lot of salads and, Mm -hmm. you know, potatoes, all, all that kind of stuff. Also Dutch. And so my, like my, uh, so Pella, I don't know if you've heard of Pella, mm-hmm. huge tulip festival, right? So every year you could drive out there and there's an Amish community and you can get Dutch letters and all that stuff. Like yeah. it's all, it's all there. But what's beautiful, it's beautiful, right? You go there because you want to experience something different. You want to experience food that you can't get at home or all those kind of things, which I, is that what you're saying? Like, yeah. that's, this is actually a good thing. Yeah. And that's what people wanted to do and they wanted to be comfortable. And people think, you know, they often tell me that, oh, but these immigrants today won't learn English, won't, you know, won't do this or that. First generation immigrants typically don't learn English well, no matter where they come from. Only about 24%, I think it's, of first generation immigrants. By the second generation, it's 88% speak English well. And by the third, they've lost the first language. It's gone. gone. So... The idea that people aren't learning English is also not rooted in reality or history. It's always been this way. Your, yep. you know, if you had a Dutch, German, whatever, grand grandparents, great grandparents, they didn't speak English either, and they learned it eventually, or their descendants did. And so that's just what's always happened. And so the expectation that people have around immigrants arriving and just automatically assimilating into American culture. It's not realistic and it's not rooted in our history in any way at all either. It's just a mythology. It exists in people's Mm -hmm. heads, these ideas, but they're very harmful and it's very difficult for people to move to a new country and then have all these expectations placed on them. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You mentioned it earlier, but we do have to talk about it. I was a little surprised. I'm guessing you weren't as surprised about the rise of Christian nationalism that we're seeing. We've seen in the last four or five, six years. The aggressiveness that it came out was is what surprises me. Uh, but I, if I look back, I can go, oh yeah, maybe that was probably there for a long time. What? How do you see it? And are you surprised by this at all? I'm not as surprised. I, I think you know. Recently, I saw this tweet that was really funny. It said that you know the the writer of the tweet thought that star wars were so unrealistic when he was little because oh <laughs> you know there was a rise of this fascist empire and then they would defeat it and then a few generations later another rise of a fascist empire <laughs> and then they're working right. to defeat it and oh okay that's kind of how it is in the world and that's yeah. kind of how it is so i think that I was very surprised by Donald Trump getting elected, as were a lot of people, because I think I thought we were better than we are, I guess, Um, in the sense (laughs) that I thought people were I I thought people would would see him as sort of a grifter, a TV personality, not someone who could honestly 
lead well. Not that a person, you know, Ronald Reagan was on TV as well and was was a very competent person, even if you disagree, you know, with him. Right. So anyway, um, but I think I was not surprised by that because I think it's one of those things that's always, if you're an immigrant person, you get those undercurrents um, all the time. They come up. Hmm. So for me, it happened, you know, being at a football game when I was a teenager, speaking Spanish to my cousins and people um, making nasty comments about speak English or go back to your country. So I think you get enough of that when you're when you are an immigrant person, you look different, you speak a different language, you have a different culture. And so you get enough of that from the country in these little small microaggressions, right? And so you're aware that there's something underneath, kind of like when it's low tide and you can see all the garbage on the beach yeah. and then it's high yeah. tide and it gets covered up, right? And so you have that sense, oh no, I know about that garbage because I see it pop up every now and then. And so I had an inkling that I think to the degree that we've seen it and the boldness of people, because, you know, I don't know if you remember, for example, the Oklahoma City bombing. These were militia groups, you know, that were out there, kind of right. nationalists. They believed they were doing the right thing, defending the country. But you think of it as something kind of fringe and not something that's mainstream in any way. Oh, yeah, there's these, you know, fringe groups out there. But now it seems that a lot of these things were not just in the fringe, but were in the ether all around yeah. and now they're and now people don't feel they feel emboldened to come out right. and to say that you know what disturbs me too is the way that uh particularly uh you know right wing talk radio I, we can i'm mm -hmm. sure i know a lot of people don't like them uh but i'll tell you what some of those people have been were real influences on me growing up it's one of the reasons i wanted to be behind the mic right uh but some of the what the ways that they've gone so so far is really really disturbing last week i was at podcast movement ben shapiro was there got kicked out or got they apologized that he, he showed up he kind of showed up unannounced but uh you know that would that created a big stir because he's he's on that edge and saying things that you're like wow why are you doing that yeah um Okay, so the Christian, yeah, Christian nationalism. I, I so it's interesting that you kind of saw that coming. I think, I think one of the problems uh, is that it it was always in the undertow, right? It was always in, always underneath, and maybe we didn't, you know, some some Christians didn't see that. We have to acknowledge, and this goes back to your point about the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of the United States, if I can use call it that, is different from the kingdom of God. They're two different things. Right. And they have two different interests. Mm -hmm. Competing interests that don't overlap. Right. And so, yes, you can't have loyalty to both. You have loyalty to one or to the other. And for followers of Jesus, we're supposed to choose the kingdom of God. And and that's a hard message for mm -hmm. some of us, for some people uh, who grew up in this, you know. And it goes back to, well, we can. I'll link uh, the episode with Kristen Cobes de May, right? Mm -hmm. So in her in her book, she does a good job detailing the sort of yes. response to communism and how all that 
goes as well. Okay. So I want to go back to this because I think if there's any one thing, friends, that I can, that this conversation, my hope is that it imbues in you, gives you, opens up a door or a window, however, however small that crack is, uh, is a kingdom view of seeing others, right? Seeing immigrants, seeing this conversation. Yes. So sum up for us, Karen, how, what is the kingdom view of yeah, the kingdom value of seeing immigrants and how's that different from maybe this nationalistic view that we've been seeing? Yeah. So this nationalistic view calls us to loyalty to our nation and to a particular way of life. Um, and an expectation that that looks a certain way and that you will look a certain way if you're a part of that. And so that's the nationalistic view, but really the way of, of Jesus has nothing to do with that at all. You know, Jesus says the second highest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And well, how do you love yourself? Do you force yourself uh, to fit into a particular box. I think the way that the expectations that are put on immigrants are so mythical, so unrealistic that really Jesus himself couldn't fit into that box. You know, if you think about Jesus' life, he was a child refugee, he was poor, he was unhoused, he was someone who um, received support from different people. He was someone who grew tired at times. He, someone who was angry in the temple and overturned the tables. Mm -hmm. And so, but somehow immigrants are supposed to be these, these model Americans and most citizens themselves can't meet these standards. And so that was my point is that when you are allowed to be who you are, it's, it's flaws and all. Uh, yeah. One of the things I really liked about that Irish museum was that they had a room of infamous um, Irish immigrants. So people oh, who nice. had gone to another country and, you know, become gangsters in the 20s and oh, yeah. or something like that. And you know what they had? They had this little sign, you know, because everything has little signs that said something like, and sometimes people migrate and rather than become famous, they become infamous. And this is what <laughs> happens with people. Some are good, some are not. <laughs> and, right. and this is really the luck of the draw. And for them, it was just a very kind of normal thing, but we don't have that expectation of immigrants. We expect immigrants to sort of have live up to this higher standard that we don't meet. And that's a, this is why immigration advocates, if you've ever heard them, will tell you the story of a hardworking, long-suffering immigrant person, and and they're these you know wonderful, perfect people. And so I've done experiments when I've gone to churches, and I'll just tell the story of just a normal person who used to smoke weed, <laughs> who used to <laughs> you know who divorced their spouse, who you know did all these different things, and and you can see people. You can see them shaking their heads uh, like, this is not the kind of person. And I'm thinking, have none of you sitting here ever gone through a divorce? Right. 
<laughs> none of you sitting here, none of you have ever done recreational drugs, right? Drank to excess. Uh, none of you have ever gotten a speeding ticket, fudged the truth on your taxes. None, none of you have ever done this, but somehow we think, well, a citizen deserves a second chance, but an immigrant person, they have to somehow be perfect. And I think mm -hmm. when we put that expectation on people, we take away from their humanity. They're allowed to have flaws. They're allowed to be frail. They're allowed to be mentally ill or disabled. Because what happens if we think immigrants should just be here to work and provide us with the produce that we need at the grocery store? I mean, then we're not looking at them as people. They're not humans. That's They're right. human resources, right? That's right. Yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. We, we start, there's a real danger when we think about people as resources or as machines, right? That you should just do this. And of course you should work hard and work 18 hour days and, and whatever, right? Right. Um, because, you know, that's the job you have. And I get to work in a cubicle in a nice air conditioned place. And um, yeah, that, that is absolutely not not a fair way to look at people or a kingdom way to look at people at all. Yeah. I appreciate that. I think, I think we have, we have to start looking and consider at least ask this question. What's, what's a kingdom value uh, for seeing uh, others around us. So I love that. So I want to, I want to wrap up with this. What's, so what's one thing that you think that you would recommend a church to do? Cause I think a lot of people will hear this mm -hmm. and they'll say, we should do something. We need to change the way that we act and interact. What's what's that one thing that a church could do? And then, then maybe one thing that an individual could do if their church isn't going to do anything. Sure. I think the best thing that people can do if, you know, if, or their church could do is you have to talk about immigration in your church. Immigrants are 11% of the population sometimes a little wow. bit higher, 15, depending on what state you're living in. I mean, this is a significant number of people. And yet this is not a message we hear from our pulpits. We yeah. don't hear people talking about this, even though we have examples of movement of people in the scriptures, we don't hear the Bible from that perspective. Somehow everyone in the Bible is an American, right? So <laughs> So I think it's important for you to educate yourself. So you don't have to take my word for it, you know, or, or your word that I think people should educate themselves. There's lots of great books on this subject. There's lots of ways that you can study the Bible. You know, I was really impressed. I went to a church down in uh, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, and it was such a blessing to me. This is a church that's mainline. It's a lot of elderly people. And you would think, oh, people can't change. You know, once people are set in their ways, you get to a certain age and that's just who you are. And I was just so impressed with this community seeking to learn about immigration. We had this immigration weekend um, where we talked about what the Bible says. They invited me to preach. And it was really heartening and a huge blessing to me that they were so interested in learning, well, what does the Bible say? And what is our responsibility as Christians? Because we have a responsibility. And if we're not being formed 
in terms of this issue or lots of issues, actually, if you're not being formed, if you're not, if you're not sure, like, oh, my views on this are being shaped by the scriptures, by Jesus teachings, then you can bet that you're being formed by whatever Fox news says, by whatever your family says, or your peer group says, and it's important for you to be formed by what God is saying on any given topic, right? Yeah. Amen. So you're always being, this is a spiritual formation principle. You're always being uh, formed in some way by whatever is around you. And so you, you know, Jim Rohn has that famous quote, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Yeah. Jesus should be one of those people. Right. Uh, And let's, let's figure out, you know, let's be very careful about that. I'm convinced this is one of the problems with the church in the United States. More people are being discipled more by uh, radio and entertainment than they are by their pastors. Partly that's because their pastors are boring. So pastors, you need to do a little better, but also uh, we, we, we just don't take it seriously. We think it's Sunday and it's a thing that we, we do then. And we don't, we don't, uh, we don't spend enough time thinking seriously about these issues. Okay. So one thing you could do friends is you can get beyond welcome. It'll be out or out soon when you get this by Karen Gonzalez. Karen, I really appreciate you, uh, you know, just sharing a little bit and having this conversation with me. I am certainly, I come from that, that, uh, that right leaning perspective where I grew up, but I, I appreciate having this conversation because it helps me learn so much. So I appreciate it. Uh, friends, Amazon, anywhere you get books or over there, podcast.com. It's there as well. I've got links to your website and all of that. Also, Karen, is there anything you want to leave us with? Yeah. I just want to challenge you. The most, the second most important commandment is one of the hardest ones to live out, but we need to lean into it. 100%. Let's do that. Thanks for being here.